0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan, coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. Tonight, how the pursuit of truth at the Robodebt Royal Commission has helped a mother grieve for her son who died by suicide. Mm-hmm. Also calls for a life ban from football after a teen is accused of yelling racist abuse at an Aboriginal NRL player.
2: We get these little affirming experiences like when a teenager screams something racial at a football player. Just get these little reminders that there definitely are people like that.
1: And the Hillsong Church accused of fraud and tax evasion during a speech in Parliament. Why should religious groups enjoy the same benefits as charities?
3: The presumptions that underlie our law as to what charity looks like and what religion looks like no longer hold.
1: First tonight, the hearings of the Robo-Debt Royal Commission have finished with the mother of a man who died by suicide, describing what happened after Centrelink told him he owed $2,000. Kathleen Madgwick says she wrote to the then Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, after the death of her son, Jared, but received no response. The government's scheme to claw back excess welfare payments was eventually found to be unlawful and dismantled, but not before debts that never even existed were auto- automatically generated and sent to innocent Australians. Alexandria Utting is covering the Royal Commission. Alex, the RoboDebt Royal Commission ended with strong testimony from a woman called Kathleen Madgwick. Why did she want to give evidence?
4: She's a mother who lost her son to suicide after he received a two thousand dollar robo debt, and she wanted to give evidence for a number of reasons. She talked about how she blamed herself. She felt because the pair were arguing the day prior to him leaving home and never coming back that she'd always thought, you know, that she had something to do with it. But she said it was her her brother that first said to her, you know, he found out about this debt only hours before he took his own life, and it sent her on this. Quest where she started contacting journalists. She even wrote to the Prime Minister just to try and get some answers from Centrelink about what led up to her son's death. And she told the Royal Commission today she was just so thankful that it had been held and that it um, had helped her immensely. Here's a bit of what she had to say earlier today. So that it didn't happen to anyone else, I felt that I needed to speak out.
5: But, uh, you know, my love for him and, this, and the pursuit of truth in what happened and be able to put my mind to rest has been very important to me. The Royal Commission has really helped me incredibly with putting some of that, most, a lot of that together. And, you know, I'm so thankful to Bill Shorten and Anthony Albanese for, you know, um, standing by their promise in bringing this here because I feel that I'll be able to finally get on and grieve for my son without all this confusion in my mind.
4: Obviously, it was a hugely traumatic experience for her to go through everything and to sit through these hearings and to hear just this litany of failures in the lead up to the Royal Commission. But from what she said today, it did go some way to giving her some sense of
1: closure. And Alex, a Centrelink social worker, Taryn Preston, also gave evidence today. Speaking about what she called the moral injury she suffered after working with robo-debt victims, what did she describe? she
4: described this sense of having this real um, sense that working for Centrelink was like a vocation for her, that when she first started working there, she she really felt like she was helping people. She was, she was seeing people who had received debts, but she was able to kind of sometimes talk with compliance officers and say, look, these people shouldn't be receiving these debts because they have all these other things going on in their lives. But she said, as Robo Debt rolled in, there became this real divide between her and the compliance officers. She said, she started to feel like this job she loved became this job where she was hurting people rather than actually helping them through difficult times in their lives. She actually noted that on one day she received um, correspondence and had meetings with 10 people who told her that they were contemplating suicide as a result of receiving these robo-debts. And she said she knew that this uh, this scheme didn't pass the pub, pub test, as she put it, but she said her attempts to raise concerns were ignored. And eventually, on advice from her doctor, she said, that the personal toll was just too much and she had to leave this job.
1: So after listening to these Royal Commission hearings, what do you think is a a fair description of robo-debt and what it did to people?
4: Yeah, I think the technical aspect of robodebt is that it was this automated debt recovery scheme. It claimed billions of dollars from four hundred thousand people. More than that, but it wasn't just about the debts. For so many people, it had it really affected their lives. There were multiple suicides. There were people who really felt like they were sort of shoved into a corner and they couldn't fight against this big system. And I think one of the the biggest things that has come out of the inquiry is that over a number of years, a number of people raised that robo-debt was potentially unlawful and was unlawful, yet the scheme was just able to continue. So I think it not only was this sort of very technical scheme about the lawfulness of income averaging and how a federal court determined they couldn't do that, but it was something that affected so many people in such an adverse way.
1: Alexandria Utting reporting. And if you need help or you know someone who's struggling, Lifeline is a service you can call. The number is 13 11 14. The New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet is calling on the NRL to slap a life ban on a fan accused of racially abusing a player. It's alleged the young fan yelled the slur at star Indigenous fullback Latrell Mitchell at a game in Sydney last night. Indigenous health workers say the incident is a crushing reminder that Australia still has a long way to go before racism is eliminated. Oliver Gordon has more.
6: Test to Johnston. Johnston with it. Back for Mitchell. Dummy, What a pass to Test. Indigenous NRL player Latrell Mitchell played well in the second half of last night's game at Penrith Stadium. But he might have had something on his mind. It's alleged earlier in the night as he and his South Sydney Rabbitohs teammates walked into the sheds at half time, a teenager hurled racial abuse at him. Police are reviewing the footage, but South Sydney's Raboteau coach, Jason Dimitriou, has been quick to stand up for his fullback. He's sick of it. Like, why, why wouldn't he be? I mean, he should be able to come here as the star of our game and not be racially abused. Who cares what colour he is? It's just not on. Mitchell's coach was also happy to suggest an appropriate course of action. It's not what our game's about, and we have to stamp it out completely. NRL clubs they have to get rid of it. I'm I'm life bans. Anyone wants to make racial abuse and get get them out of the game. We don't want their support. That sentiment has been echoed by New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet. There is
1: no
0: place for racism at sporting games or anywhere in New South Wales. And when it happens, it should be stamped out immediately. There should be life bans in place and I call on the NRL to take that action. We've got to take
2: leadership here.
6: Authorities are not revealing what was said to Mitchell, but it's understood the teenage spectator allegedly behind the attack was ejected from the stadium at half time. Latrell Mitchell is yet to speak on the matter, but NRL CEO Andrew Abdo says he's been in touch with him. Let's be honest, these types of things hurt. Latrell is a human being. And uh, comments like this affect us whether or not we want to admit that. Um, But he knows that the game stands behind him. And I think he's gain, gaining a lot of strength from the support that he has from everyone inside the game. So will the alleged perpetrator be handed a lifetime ban if the allegations are proven true? Andrew Abdo hasn't ruled it out. The jurisdiction for our game sits under the NRL. So if we were going to implement um, uh, hypothetically a restriction on who can attend our games, we're able to do that. Um, but that's a matter for us to consider once we know the facts. The incident appears to share similarities with the racist abuse former AFL player and Australian of the year Adam Goods copped in 2013 at the hands of a 13-year-old Collingwood fan. In the ensuing press conference, Adam Goods spoke of the impact of the language. It was it was shattering. I, I turned around and when I saw it was a young girl and I thought it was 14. That was my initial thought. I was just like, really? I was just like how could that happen? Indigenous nurse Robert Doyle works with Aboriginal men struggling with their mental health. He agrees it can be particularly jarring when younger members of the community use racial slurs.
2: It demonstrates that like it must be in his family, it must be in his culture, it must be in his community. So that's a whole other generation that are going to be violent towards us.
6: He says incidents like these can lead to distrust.
2: We, we get these little affirming... Experiences like when a teenager screams something racial at a football player, just get these little reminders that there definitely are people like that. So which ones are the right ones?
6: They can also have a hidden impact on someone's overall health and well-being. It's part of a
2: a really complex cluster of intersectionalities of, of social determinants of health that I think a lot of Indigenous people live with. And we don't always know that we are. We just live with it. And the, and it only comes to a head when something like this happens and that sickness comes back up.
6: And with the country gearing up for a very public debate on the merits of an Indigenous voice to Parliament, he's preparing himself for more harsh moments. I'm excited
2: about the voice that's coming up, but I'm really nervous about what it's going to provoke and, and um, unveil in the public as as people who are threatened or even... Just, just have that bias against Aboriginal people start to add their voice, I think it's going to be rough for us coming up to that.
1: Indigenous mental health nurse Robert Doyle ending Oliver Gordon's report. The charity's watchdog is investigating allegations made in Parliament that the Hillsong Church may be involved in tax evasion, fraud and money laundering. The independent MP Andrew Wilkie has used parliamentary privilege to accuse Hillsong leaders of spending thousands of dollars on lavish holidays airfares and cash gifts. Bridget Fitzgerald reports.
7: Luxury holidays in Cancun, private jets and lavish jewellery. Independent Tasmanian MP Andrew Wilkie used parliamentary privilege to accuse Hillsong Church of breaking financial laws in Australia and around the world.
8: Deputy Speaker, Hillsong followers believe that the money they put in the poor, a poor box, goes to the poor. But these documents show how that money is actually used to do the kind of shopping that would embarrass a Kardashian.
7: Standing before large stacks of documents which were tabled in Parliament, Mr Wilkie claimed church funds were used on gifts and high-end department stores.
8: For example, a $6,500 Cartier watch, shopping sprees for designer clothes at Saks Fifth Avenue and even $16,000 for custom skateboards.
7: Cabinet Minister Jason Clare told Channel 7's Sunrise program that Mr Wilkie's allegations should be looked at.
8: From
9: the
10: nature of the allegations that have been put before the Parliament today and the nature of the response from the church, it it seems like the sort of thing that the tax office needs to take seriously.
7: In a statement, a spokesperson for Hillsong Church disputed the allegations, claiming Mr Wilkie's remarks were out of context and based on untested allegations made by an employee in an ongoing legal case. The spokesperson said the church had been open and transparent with its congregation about past financial governance failures and it engaged independent professional assistants to overhaul governance and accountability procedures.
0: These allegations made under parliamentary privilege are in many respects wrong and it is disappointing he made no effort to contact us first. Like
7: many other religious institutions, Hillsong Church is a registered charity. Jason Ward is the principal analyst with the Centre for International Corporate Tax and Research.
0: Because they're a church and have charitable status, there's no tax payments. So this is a company that clearly has lots of different business ventures, but none of those ventures are actually paying any income tax due to the charitable status. And so I I think one of the things that has to be considered is whether they're entitled to charitable status at all
3: that comes back really to the heart of this problem is that our understanding of who deserves that state support and is doing good for the public and therefore deserves that is changing. Dr Renee
7: Barker is a senior lecturer at the University of Western Australia specialising in the intersection of law and religion. She says Hillsong's an evangelical religion based in prosperity theology.
3: Classic versions of that that exist in the US, often a monetary version, you'll see the televangelist asking people to, to give large amounts of money to the church because that is why your way of showing that you are prosperous and therefore you are right with God and God is blessing your life and it seems a material blessing. Dr. Barker says the extending of charitable status to religious
7: institutions is based on religions like Catholicism or the Protestant church that have been historically focused on poverty, austerity and charitable service.
3: Now, we don't live in that world anymore. Our religious makeup here in Australia is very very different and so the presumptions that underlie our law of to what charity looks like and what religion looks like no longer hold. And I think that's this disjuncture that Wilkie has identified in his concerns he's raised in Parliament is we think of one thing and what we're actually getting and giving legal exemptions from the paying of tax to is something different to that which was presumed to underlie the law when it was
7: originally written. Charitable status can be granted to groups for advancing religion. They don't need to be directly involved in charitable endeavours. Dr Barkas says to change that could lead to discrimination if certain groups or religions were excluded.
3: If you want to remove religion from the list, you will probably have some unintended consequences. You would take off some groups from receiving that public support you weren't expecting. The Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission, the
7: ACNC, has confirmed it's investigating concerns raised about Hillsong Church.
1: Bridget Fitzgerald. This is PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. Ahead, how a changing climate could have us paying more for coffee.
0: People may have to look at other sources of getting their caffeine and then reducing their coffee intake. Really, there's no
10: where else the price of coffee can go but up.
1: The Northern Territory government is accused of putting people's lives at risk by failing to demolish homes. One of its own reports found wouldn't withstand a cyclone. The government did agree to demolish 10 of the houses built under one of its affordable housing schemes. But residents of several other places built under the scheme and in private developments in Palmerston near Darwin say they're being left in danger. Jane Barden reports.
11: When the washing machine is on, Bree Kulf's house in the Palmerston suburb of Bellamac shakes. It's an earthquake. It actually is terrifying. As we walk through, the whole house wobbles. There are cracks between the roof and walls. So you can normally see outside from inside. The bathroom floor isn't watertight. Flooring is lifting everywhere because the floor base flexes as you walk and the roof leaks. You can see like that's right over. <laughs> over your bed. Yeah. Oh, dear. When she bought the house in June last year on a $455,000 mortgage, she was told by the agent and building inspectors it was sound. Three weeks later, she got a letter from the NT government telling her that the home and the others built under an affordable housing scheme were structurally non-compliant. A government report had found they have problems, including corrosion of steel supports, and they're unsafe in a cyclone or just strong winds.
5: I was really disappointed because I had just paid obviously tens of thousands of dollars of stamp duty so they were aware that, that like, the name transfer has been done, the title transfer has been done and then they send you a letter after all of that's done to say, by the way, the house you've just bought won't withstand a cyclone, don't be in it.
11: Now in the middle of cyclone season, she hasn't had any offer to get the house demolished or be compensated. Even though the NT government agreed to do that for 10 of these houses in 2021.
5: I'm always scared when there's a storm because you're not sure if your ceiling's going to be peeled off or you'll wake up and half your house will be missing or it will collapse and things like that.
11: Bree and other householders have been left uncovered by different government building insurance schemes and consumer affairs responsibilities. The departments have,
5: you know, backed This scheme for affordable housing and now they're like it's not my problem they're a concern for not only the person that owns the property and lives in the property but the houses that are around as well because you don't know if a giant windstorm comes through where the where your ceiling's gonna land it's it's a real big concern for the public not just the homeowners these houses are a serious health and risk they need to be fixed or they need to be demolished
11: The builder who used this same housing system imported from China for properties all over Palmerston has denied fault, saying he followed government-approved plans and he's declared bankruptcy. The building certifier also declared bankruptcy.
9: This house has problems with um, bracing, missing um, beams that were supposed to be, be be put in behind these panels here.
11: Dave Cunnington commissioned his house in nearby suburb Rosebury from the same builder in 2012. He reported his concerns about the house nine years ago. He says if the government had acted then, the Bellarmac affordable housing development could have been stopped.
9: Those houses at Bellarmac were Bellarmac, they were just platforms standing up. There was nothing on top of them. They could have addressed that almost immediately. This problem and not just my house, all of these houses, and especially the houses in Balamac, that was caused by the Building Advisory Service, the government, not doing their job. It's their responsibility.
11: He tried to sue the builder until he ran out of money and the defects remain.
9: This house has had yet a third layer of flooring put down to try to make it so it's good to walk
11: Walk walk on. Mr Cunnington is now worried about his tenants here.
9: I've told them if a cyclone comes, they better not be in the house. I also... Because I know the neighbourhood, I've also seen all the neighbours and I've advised them exactly the same thing.
11: He's recently been offered a government meeting, but only if he keeps quiet.
9: This department has chosen to have us sign things like gag orders before they'll even meet with us. What have they got to hide?
11: Palmerston anti-Labour government backbench MP and former veteran police officer Mark Turner says he's asked ministers to demolish the houses and the police and ICAC to investigate.
6: Somebody
0: with decision-making power needs to show leadership and I can understand that it's a an absolute minefield. Yes, there is compensatory issues. We need to deal with the safety issue. I don't want this to end up in a coronial inquiry. I don't want to end th- this to end up with somebody's children in the hospital. We know that children have already gone through the floors
12: in some of these properties.
11: The NT Chief Minister, Natasha Files, isn't offering those left hanging demolition or compensation.
12: Both departments involved have been working
11: through to rectify those issues. Brie Kulf and some others may consider a class court action. She says they're fed up with feeling fobbed off. Everyone is concerned and I don't understand why they just keep saying that there's not an issue.
5: If you've been able to demolish 10 of them, why not the others?
1: Northern Territory homeowner Brick Hulf talking there to Jane Barden. Australia's shipbuilding industry is anxiously awaiting details of the plan for the nation's acquisition of nuclear-powered submarines. The Prime Minister will announce the strategy with the leaders of the UK and the US in California on Tuesday. Leaked reports, though, suggest that under the AUKUS Defence Pact, Australia's first few new submarines will be built overseas. And that's got shipbuilders here worried we're decades away from being able to deliver locally built subs. Angus Randall reports.
8: Near Adelaide's shipyards, South Australia's Premier Peter Malinowskis remains confident his state has the capability to join an elite global club of nuclear-powered submarine builders.
0: And hopefully a few days' time, the Prime Minister will affirm the Commonwealth's commitment to build the most advanced machines anywhere in the world, nuclear
8: submarines, right here in South Australia. Two years ago, Adelaide's shipbuilding sector was preparing to build 12 French-designed diesel-powered submarines until then Prime Minister Scott Morrison tore up a $90 billion contract with the French. Instead, the nuclear submarines are set to come from the US and UK as part of the AUKUS Pact. Where they'll be built remains unknown. It's an enormous shift and one Dr Malcolm Davis from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute says we're not ready for
2: Look, I think we're a long way away from having the capacity to do that. Uh, Building conventional diesel electric submarines is one thing. Building nuclear-powered submarines is quite another. Uh, We do not have the infrastructure to be able to build nuclear submarines here at this point in time. We'd need to develop that. It's a challenging path to get to the point whereby we can build the submarines here.
8: On Tuesday, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese will announce the rollout plans for the first eight nuclear submarines. Early reports suggest Australia will not build the first few subs. Instead, they'll be constructed in the US. That has those in the industry nervous. Rex Patrick is a former submariner and former independent federal senator.
0: This is likely to be the death of Australia's sovereign submarine industry, capability. If we get between three and five Virginia-class submarines uh, off, the, off the shelf built in, in the United States, there is no shipbuilding that is going to take place, no submarine building that's going to take place in Adelaide for 15 years. And you really have to ask the question, if you buy five uh, of the eight submarines you're intending to buy, will they really ever shift any manufacturing? Uh, to South Australia for the last three.
8: Australia has not built a brand new submarine since the 1990s. The sector is currently devoted towards maintaining the fleet of six diesel-powered Collins-class subs. Glenn Thompson is the national convener of the Australian Shipbuilding Federation of Unions. He says starting a submarine project in one country and finishing in another would be unprecedented.
9: We have major concerns about speculation of three to five Virginia-class subs being built offshore, the reality is that no shipbuilding program that doesn't start in a place will be shifted at a particular time. And we would expect that the first submarine would be built in Australia. But we need a decision from government about what we're going to do over the next decade to build the workforce.
8: He says a similar debate was held decades ago.
9: In the early days when Australia opted to buy and build a Collins-class submarine, the debate was about the first one being built offshore and the remaining five being built in Australia. The reason we have the capability in Australia now is because we built the whole six here.
8: Prime Minister Albanese will announce the submarine plans on Tuesday.
1: Angus Randall reporting from Adelaide. Well, how much did you pay for your last cup of coffee? If you think the price of your caffeine fix has gone up lately, be prepared to pay even more. Research from the CSIRO has found what it calls climate hazards are becoming more common in the world's coffee-producing areas and supply could be affected.
12: Isabel Masali has more. Perth man Cameron Naudishani has been roasting and selling coffee beans for 25 years, like many business owners, he's seen a spike in several of his production costs. So he raised his own prices recently. But by no means is he losing business.
0: It's very, very busy. It's very busy. And what you'll find, and this, is, this was the same thing when the GFC hit, and I was around for that, people consume more coffee when they're stressed out. And I think it's a simple fact that people are running on adrenaline because they're stressed out, they're fearful, and what caffeine does is it pumps your adrenaline. So they just keep feeding it.
12: But he is concerned about the impact of climate change on coffee production and what that could mean in the long term.
0: I mean, the the, the temperatures are changing, so you can't keep growing you know, certain qualities of coffee in the same location forever. So I think people may have to look at other sources of getting their caffeine and then reducing their coffee intake because the coffee prices are going to go up further. Or they may have to go for lower qualities of beans that are not growing in very specific microclimates that produce certain you know, nuanced qualities
12: Researchers from the CSIRO have looked at this issue in depth and on a global scale, examining the top 12 coffee-producing regions. They warn global coffee production is at risk from increasing and concurrent climate hazards. Here's research scientist Dr Doug Richardson.
9: In some ways, we were surprised at quite how clear a particular signal was, so we expected to
8: see some kind of change in, in the way that these climate hazards occur over these coffee regions because we know because of global warming that temperatures are increasing. And what we found is that the number of these climate hazard events in coffee regions has become more frequent since 1980. But on top of that, the main problem used to be that these conditions were too cool, but now it's often that they're too hot. And that aligns with what we know about the impacts of climate change.
12: He says if these trends continue, then we might see global shocks to supply. Associate Professor Elizabeth Jackson says it's already a tight industry. she's a food supply chain and agribusiness expert at Curtin University.
10: This is a, an international industry where revenue amounts to you know just under 500 billion US dollars and you know it's expected to grow by about 4 4.5%. This is a big industry so if there was any if there had been any room for expansion you know into new production systems it probably would have already happened. But we're just not seeing that. So we're really looking at quite a finite amount of um, coffee that comes into the market. And so because of that and because of these pressures um, that the CSIRO report has talked about, really there's nowhere else the price of coffee can go but up.
12: She adds the good news is the agriculture industry is increasingly finding ways to adapt to climate change. But when it comes to coffee... Coffee is
10: mostly grown in low-income countries. Where farmers don't have the respons- the disposable resources to trial um, new technologies, or indeed, um, or, or haven have new technologies invested in by go- government entities. Having said that, however, these countries um, are often gifted with extraordinary amounts of um, global funding for, for agricultural development. And even I know the Australian government puts a lot of money in. I think there is a really good opportunity to increase coffee production from the very, very, very limited area that
12: we've got. But that's going to take time. And she says adding to that is the nature of coffee production, which can take years. So for now, coffee drinkers may need to reconsider how much they're willing to pay. Isabel Masali. And
1: that's PM for this week. PM's producer is David Cody. Technical production by Nick Dan and David Sargent. I'm Samantha Donovan. I'll be back with PM on Monday evening and do join Melissa Clark on the radio tomorrow morning for this week looking at interest rates, the Prime Minister's trip to India and the robo-debt inquiry. Thanks very much for your company this week. Have a great weekend. Good night.
7: I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. Public hearings in the Royal Commission investigating who's to blame for the deeply flawed robo-debt scheme end this week. Today, ABC reporter Rachel Mealy walks us through the key evidence. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app.